Hello, and welcome to All the Gospel, a sermon podcast from Kirksville Assembly of God. We are happy to have you as a part of our listening community. Thank you for joining us as we explore the Word together. We are in Genesis chapter 9. So as you're turning there, I do think there is a deep human desire to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. And this is a long passage of Scripture we've got here. But as you're turning, uh, kind of the, the focal point of what we're talking about this morning is, is what Paul says to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 31. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. So Paul just goes straight to Genesis 1 there. He gives himself to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from every one man, or from one man, every nation of mankind to live under all the face of the earth. That they, all mankind, that they should seek God and perhaps find him. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. And he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so that's going to be our kind of our overall kind of, as we read these passages, uh, and it is, part of it is a long genealogy, um, and we're going to read it. I was like, it takes me five minutes to read this passage, and I was like, I'm, I'm, in the past I've read the whole scripture, and I'm going to keep doing it, and I know it's a genealogy, but I think it's awesome. I was looking forward to this, this passage of scripture um, for several weeks, getting, could I just skip to it, was kind of the thing. It's like, no, 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 got to do diligence on each one of these. But this one is really exciting. This is some, there's some cool stuff in here. So let's, let's open in prayer uh, the, the sermon portion. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. God, that you've given us this book and these words, your words, through authors inspired by the Holy Spirit thousands of years ago. God, that this portion of Scripture that we are reading, that we are dedicating time out of our Sunday morning to get together to study, to read, was written 2,500 years ago. And God, it is still precious to us today. And help us, help us to, to, to see what it is that your Spirit wants, to see, wants us to see out of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read first uh, chapter 9, 18 through 28. This is kind of a... a uh, some context. So, so let's read. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done, he said to him, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, And let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So this passage gives us the narrative context for what comes next. It gets us off of the ark, 
We, we got off the ark. Now we're ready to move into the next portions of Genesis. The author is transitioning us with this portion of Scripture. And it, it helps us see the context of the genealogy that's going to start in chapter 10. It gives us the context for, for Babylon. It gives us the context as well for Abraham. And it gives us the context for the rest of the Bible going forward. So this is a really important piece of uh, passage here. And I don't know what's happening in that tent. Okay, And I don't want to speculate, but some crazy is going on there, and it wasn't good, whatever it was. But again, I think we see the replay of the garden here in Genesis. We're only, you know, nine verses, nine chapters away from the garden, and here we see a replay. We talked about it before. The taking of the fruit, the consuming it, the nakedness, although the nakedness is reversed here. Um, but it's also then followed by a curse. So there's a curse placed on Canaan that he'll be a servant of his brother's. And a little side note, I think here, again, if we keep this in the context of Moses, the author, Moses and the Israelites going into the land of Canaan, what you have here is some nice biblical smack talk against the uh, Canaanite people about where their people actually came from. Um, but, but that's not to say that Canaan will be cut off and forgotten. And so a big part of what we're going to talk about today is, is God's people and the family of God, and that idea. But Canaan here is cursed, but not cut off. And they're going to be in a bad situation. Canaan is actually the son of Ham, uh, but uh, you probably noticed it. It repeated it twice. Ham was the father of Canaan. The father of Canaan repeated it twice, and we notice when things repeat like that. And so Canaan is not cut off. It's going to bear some important stuff as we move on through, our, through the uh, Scripture today. Chapter 9, verse 19 is kind of a thesis statement for the next two chapters. It says, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. And this is important. This is an important idea. The Bible makes a bold claim here that all people are God's people. All people are God's people. That Noah got off the ark and then all the generations of the earth, all the peoples were scattered from Noah and the line that God preserved. So all people are God's people. Some of them just may not know it yet. Okay, so we'll get there. Chapter 10 is where I really want to spend most of the time. Um, well, it's just longer. But we're going to read this too. As we read it, I want you to understand, this is the genealogical narrative, a genealogy of the peopling of the whole earth. It is unparalleled in the ancient world. There's nothing like this in any other writing of any other people from this age or even on into the Greeks like thousands of years later. This is, it's called the Table of Nations. And the, what the Hebrews have done here is a remarkable piece of historical literature. And so sometimes, I don't, this is not spiritual. This is just, the Bible is awesome. The Bible is awesome. And it includes some really, really important things that we'll talk about here. I'll get, uh, this is why I'm, I get a little excited. I'm like, wait, what history of peoples? So I get a little excited about that. But um, we'll get back to the spiritual in a second. It is accurate that these peoples that they list here are accurate, both in their context of where they would come from and their geographic region. And it's also structured really beautifully as well. So as we read, you'll notice, yes, it'll get long, but track your mind on this stuff. There are three large sections, so it's organized by sun. And then notice the geographic place markers. Some of these we don't know about, but notice them. So let's read it. 
together. Follow along with me. Genesis 10.1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth. I want you to count these as I read them. Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. How many were there? Seven. The sons of Gomer. Now, these are the grandsons of Japheth. Count just the grandsons. Ashkenath, Rithphath, and Togamar. The sons of Javan, so we'll count these as well. Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. How many were those? Seven. So seven sons and seven grandsons. There's important things that the author is beginning to structure for us in the beginning of this that we should understand. The number seven, like in the seven days of creation, we're talking about completeness. And so these, it's a symbolic representation of the completeness of the the peoples here. Verse five, from these, the coastland people spread their land, each of them his own la- with his own language by their clans and their nations. So there are other people that are not mentioned here, but the seven was important for the author. Let's keep going. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtica. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. That, I think, is like, we'll talk about Nimrod next week a little bit, but when like people are playing basketball and they stick their tongue out and pretend they're Michael Jordan, that's the same thing that's happening with Nimrod here. Like a mighty hunter, you know. Okay, sorry, that was a side note for next week. The beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod, was Babel, or Babylon. Eric, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Oh, we've heard of that city before. Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kazlahim, from whom the Philistines came. Oh, that's a little note like, oh, you'll hear about Philistines later in this book too. And Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, the firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites and the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zamorites, the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed. So we get this dispersion. And the territory of the Canaanites extended geographic place here from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Tushem also, the father of all children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. Japheth. Children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, uh, and Aram. The sons of Aram. I'm reading, just, we're going, this is important. Like Sean. How many times did you read this to get all these names and say them so quickly? A lot. I read this a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, lost my place. 23. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arkpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. Hmm, interesting. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazarmarveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dekal, Obel, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. 
the territory in which they all lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Serev uh, to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to the genealogies, their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Did anybody count how many nations were mentioned there? A lot. Seventy. The author puts here 70 nations. We had the two lists of seven to begin with, and now we've got 70 altogether. Something's happening here. Seven, we know, is like completion. So we're dealing with like completion at a seven level. But 70 represents a big completion. It's like really complete. So the number 70 in the Bible, it will do this. The author is doing this as well. So it's a symbolic statement that the list represents all the nations on the earth. Some familiar nations. We actually know some of them. Gomer. It's been tracked back. The Germanic peoples of Western Europe would be Gomer. Meshach uh, settled and became the Russian people. Javan is the Hebrew word for Greece. Ham. It just says Ham is, uh, has Egypt in there, but also Cush is Babylon, Ethiopia. Shem is all the Semitic people. And Eber was in there. Made a special point about Eber. Eber is the Hebrew word for Hebrew. The Hebrew people in this list are just one of many. And what's so unique about this particular writing is that this that's absolutely unique for all of the other writings, for all of like, where does the history of these people come from for Babylon or Assyria when they write it about themselves or Egypt? Because most of it's going to be propaganda. It's going to say why our people are better than your people. Like, oh, we're Babylonians. We came from the gods. You guys are not Babylonians. You descended, you ascended from the dirt, you know. And that's what other ancient writings do. But the, what happens here is you see that the Hebrews are just one of 70. At this point, they're not called out yet. They will be. But at this point, the point is just made that all people are God's people. The human family. The family of God. God, the good, good father of all humanity. But like we said, some of them just may not know it yet. This also represents a very successful, fruitful multiplication and filling of the earth. Like they were told to do after they got off the boat. God said to Noah a few times, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Check. Okay. Did it. We proved it. We read it all. And this is important context for the rest of the biblical story because if we look at people from God's eyes and see that all people are made in God's image and all people are God's people, then all of the Old Testament should be read as nothing more than a sibling rivalry. Anybody got siblings or have multiple children who, or you know of children, uh, you've heard of them before. They, they do this, the sibling rivalries that happen even between brothers and sisters. And sometimes out of the blue and for no reason, when we understand God as the Father looking down on all of His children and seeing the conflict and rivalries that are happening there, we get an important perspective. And God has always been working to bless all people groups. He has been working to bless all people groups. But we begin to see the fracturing of God's people. There's a couple things that we read that demonstrate the fracturing or the separating of some of God's people. 
the story of Ham, Ham's choices uh, represent the choices of the rest of the Canaanites to kind of follow the curse and expose the nakedness of others. But they're not left out of the story altogether. I'm going to come back to this, but the idea is that the Canaanites have a special place in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to look at it. Nimrod. Nimrod's in here. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. Warrior. But his choices lead to the establishment of major empires. Assyria, Babylon. He's like establishing all the big bad empires. The brothers, Peleg and Joktan, they divide. The brothers divide. It made a special point to say these two brothers, Peleg, because the world divided. Peleg is sounds like the Hebrew word for divide. Joktan's people lead to the Tower of Babylon where they try to make their own name. And Peleg's people lead to Abraham, who God will make a name for. And so you've got a divide there. So there is a divide. All people are God's people, but there's a division that's starting at this point already. So even though God elects to bless all people through Abraham's family, he still means to bless all people. He still means to bless all people. These nations will come back up again throughout the Bible, sometimes as antagonists, sometimes as enemies, but sometimes God will use a Canaanite woman or a Moabite woman or an Egyptian to do good because his people are doing poorly. And our problem still today, our problem with our world, is the same world, this fracturing, this separation of peoples. All people are God's people, but we're divided. We're divided First of all, from God by sin. There is a separation of people from God by sin. And sin is actually the same thing that separates people from people as well. That sin comes in and begins to draw horizontal lines and then vertical lines between people as well. Walls of separation. And so what we see in our society is people trying to reconnect, maybe with God, but maybe just with some Something bigger than themselves. Something higher than themselves. We're trying to connect with something deeper than just the shallowness of everyday life. Or we try to connect people uh, together and we try to unite people, um, but a lot of times that happens in ungodly ways. So we try to unite people, but we try to do it, like, think globally. We'll start big picture. Um, empires like Babylon and and Assyria, these places, they come and try to force people to live together, to be together, to exist on the same plane together. An empire reshapes a conquered people in their own image. That's what an empire does. An empire is any civilization that seeks to expand its territory and or influence or and influence over other people. So a civilization seeks to expand its territory and or influence over other people groups. That's straight out of my world history class. I just stole that one too from myself. So we see this. Russia has made the claim that they're taking the Ukraine because that's their people and their land. So they're going to take it and they're going to reshape it in the form of Russia. And the Ukraine's like, no. And they're doing a fantastic job of like saying no, um, pushing them back. But that's the whole idea it still exists. Nationally, let's, so we'll bring it down out of the rafters. There's nothing I can do about, you know, Russia and Ukraine. But nationally as well, people are divided. Political parties actually form to reshape the culture of America in their own image. That's what they do. All political parties is what they do. Or interest groups. You could just 
Think about the interest group that interests you. It's what they do. I'm not saying these are bad things necessarily. We'll keep going. James Madison, I borrowed this for myself too. James Madison defines political parties as factions as a number of citizens who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens. So when we start to separate out into separate groups, then our group is adverse to that group, and we begin to be adversaries. Do you know what the Hebrew word for adversary is? Satan. Satan. And so when we start to be enemies with people, then we set up ourselves into this. We are just dividing people too. And we're just doing it ourselves. Personally, all right, this just gets worse. I'm not, I'm not pulling any punches, okay? It just gets worse. Personally, we do this as well. We'll go around, we form cliques and clubs to define our group and their group. So I got my group. When I was in high school, uh, I don't know what group I was in. I was voted most down to earth, whatever that means, most normal. Um, so groupless, but I, I, I rode around with the punk rockers. Uh, but also, so we had a group of, of hardcore uh, punk rockers, and then we had a group we called the Cool Beans. The Cool Beans were the popular kids, okay? And those weren't supposed to get along, and we had segregated ourselves out that way. Um, we, we went to a suburban school in St. Louis. There was still desegregation, uh, so they bust out kids from the inner city uh, and to solve the problem of segregation. But guess what? There was still segregation within the school. Still segregated communities. Um, but personally, we form these cliques and clubs to define our group against their group. Or we try to manipulate people around us into acting the way we want them to act through coercive emotional, monetary, or other means. We try to coerce, we try to get people to do what we want through emotional manipulation or things like that. It just, it, seeps down. These fractures of humanity seep down into the very depths of who we are. We can't escape these things in and of ourselves. I do think it's at the personal level that we can have the most impact. We being the millions of Christians that exist on the planet can have the most immediate impact. And then, of course, nationally. I understand we vote in a few weeks. We should vote. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't participate. What I'm saying is be careful not to become an enemy or to make enemies. And we look and see the life and the cross of Jesus lead us to help us understand a bunch of these things. The life of Christ shows a willingness to cross these family lines. I'm calling them family lines. We could call them ethnic lines, racial lines, whatever people group lines we want to. In the genealogy of Matthew, yes, there's a lot of good stuff in genealogies. Stop calling them boring. They're awesome. The genealogy of Matthew, there are three Canaanite women. That did not have to be mentioned. But Matthew was like, you know what? These women are important. They're women and they're foreigners. They're Canaanites. Tamar is in there in verse 3. Rahab. And then Bathsheba isn't mentioned by name. And technically, her husband was a Hittite. So, um, But Bathsheba's in there as well. So they're descendants of Ham. Ruth is in there as well. Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites are in the line of Shem, cousin of Abraham, um, that's through Lot's line. So you got four women, three of which are Canaanites and one Moabite. 
Then there's this interesting story about Jesus crossing lines. In Matthew 15, 22 through 28, there's this Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed son. Remember her? And she was like, Jesus, help my son. And Jesus was like, I did not come for the Canaanites. And she's like, but even the dogs deserve the scraps. And he's like, good point. And he healed her son. Now, Jesus is making, there's a bunch going on there. We don't have time for it, but just go you ponder that. Matthew 15, 22 through 28. Jesus reaches across that line and he says, you know what, Canaanite woman? We got you too. Not to mention the good Samaritan. The Samaritan is a complex story, but we have to understand that Jesus told us, told us we have to cross these family lines as well. When he told us in the Great Commission to go to all nations. We have a modern day understanding of a nation that the Hebrews and even Jesus wouldn't have had. This idea of the nation is a country, like America is a nation. Um, not the same nation. Nation is a group of people, just a group of people, usually related in some ways um, in these family line types of things. So we're talking about more like an ethnicity or a race than a country, but I think country works fine too. Actually, we'll talk about that in a second. Secondly, the cross of Christ broke down the wall that divides humanity from God. So this horizontal line, the cross breaks it down. The wall that was built by our own sin and selfishness and greed and fear and, you know, we build this wall between us and God. There was a veil in the temple. The veil in the temple was built and it separated God's presence in the Holy of Holies from the rest of the world. When Jesus died, the veil was torn asunder. It was torn in two, torn right in half. And the presence of God is now available to all people. All people are God's people. It's just sometimes they don't know it yet. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 says that it's just, not just presence is out, but adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So not only is the wall torn down, that's awesome, but also adoption into the family of God is available to us. And that, that is incredible. Step number one. Of all the steps, that is the most important. That relationship can be repaired and it has to be repaired first thing. And pronto, get it fixed. That relationship between you and God. Second thing the cross does, the purpose of the cross of Christ is to draw all people together. John Stott says it this way in his book called The Cross of Christ. The very purpose of his self giving on the cross was not just to save isolated individuals, which would just perpetuate their loneliness, but rather to create a new community whose members would belong to him, love one another, and eagerly serve the world. This community of Christ would be nothing less than a renewed and reunited humanity of which he, Jesus, as the second Adam, would be the head. It would include representatives from every nation. Christ died, Christ died in abject aloneness, rejected by his own nation, deserted by his own disciples, but lifted up on the cross, he would draw all people to himself. Amazing. Thus, the cross is the symbol, is a symbol of the unification of nations, not division of nations. It has been historically horribly abused on the chest of crusaders uh, out 
murdering Muslims and the Jewish people, uh, the symbol of Jewish persecution ultimately leading to the Holocaust. The cross and the symbol of the cross have been horribly misused in history, but the true purpose of the cross of Christ is to draw all people together at its foot in humble submission to the true king of the universe. The third thing the cross does, the cross brought about a new humanity through the resurrection of the true human Jesus. The cross brought about a new humanity. When the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost with a blowing wind and fire, they began to speak in other languages. And actually what you'll see in Acts chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11, is another table of nations. And it's the reverse of the one that we just read. Peter explains that this represents the reunification of humanity under the cross of Christ by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He says, Peter says, quoting the prophet Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my people, my, my spirit on all flesh, sons and daughters, young and old, male and female servant people. He will pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all flesh. John Stott continues, he says, and from the day of Pentecost onward, it has been clear that conversion to Christ also means conversion to the community of Christ. As people turn from themselves to Him and from this corrupt generation to the alternative society which He is gathering around Himself, these two transfers of personal allegiance and social membership cannot be separated. That we are not just separated to Christ, but that we are separated to Christ and each other as a family and a body of believers. That's why we gather together. The fourth thing the cross does, it breaks down human divisions. Ephesians 2, verse 14 says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Jew is one, and then the rest of us are Gentile. Fun fact, Gentile and genealogy and genome project all come from the same root, gen, gene. That was cool to me. I'll just keep doing that, amuse myself every once in a while. So, so uh, Gentile, Jew and Gentile, the wall's broken down. So the cross breaks down social, breaks social walls between men and women, between slave and free. It breaks economic walls of rich and poor. It breaks cultural walls such as language and style differences, which is what Paul was talking about to those people in Athens, the verse I read from Acts 17, 24 through 31. It breaks down political walls such as nationalism. Revelation 7.9 says this about nations. After, I, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands shouting, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. To our God, every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. What a church service that will be. My trouble with nationalism is nationalism, uh, this is the word that's buzzing around right now, is defined as loyalty and devotion to a nation, especially exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on one on promotion of its cultural interest as opposed to those of other nations. And that is contrary to what we would see in what we read in Revelation of every nation and all tribes and all, 
all um, peoples and languages and understand what I'm saying. When the World Cup rolls around and the U.S. is playing England, my patriotism will be flaring and I will be screaming, you know, for goals and stuff. I'm not talking about patriotism. I'm not talking about loving your country. Love your country. Vote. Like I said, vote. It's coming up. Vote. Um, what I'm talking about is the idea that of one over another or the adversarial relationship between one and the other is contrary to what we see in Scripture. We understand there will be nations in Earth 2.0. This is what we've called Earth in the new heaven and the new Earth in youth group. They wanted to call it Earth 2.0. Um, so in Earth 2.0, okay, the new heaven, the new Earth, there will be nations. So don't get me wrong. There will be nations. Um, Revelation 21, 4 through 20. Revelation 21, 24 through 26, and then Revelation 22, 2, talk about nations. The idea of a nation isn't, isn't bad, but there will not be the divisions, conflicts, superiority issues between them like we see now. Rather, there will only be honor, respect, and love for God and each other in this new world where God fixes us and our broken family relationship. Fifth thing, I don't even know what number I'm on. F is my note. Uh, the cross sets a standard for how all peoples should live. One, we should live as members of Christ's family. Like the verse we read about adoption into Christ's family, Romans 8.16 calls us children and heirs of God with our brother Jesus, provided we suffer with him. Suffering. It's like, this is how we get people to come and you want to be a Christian? You want to suffer for Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, we do, because that's the point. How do we suffer for Jesus? Loving our enemies to the point of death. Being honest even when it hurts. Being generous to the point of pain. Surrendering our hope and fear in the favor, in favor of God's plan. What is it God wants? And I will surrender myself to Him. And that might be, that might be physical suffering, but just the idea of not doing what I want can sometimes be suffering. Just ask one of those children things we talked about. God loves us like a father. We are his. Peter says it this way. Once, y'all were not a people. But now, y'all are God's people. Paul fills it in and says, a people for his own possession. See, we aren't just supposed to lounge about in God's house, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to live in God's basement, playing video games all day long. No offense, Jackson. That's just a trope for society. Yeah, no, you're doing a great job. I know, it was harsh, but it was not directed at you. But that's the idea sometimes. We're like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a child of God, and what do I do? I just lounge about. I'm just like kicking up my heels in God's house. Titus, Paul says in Titus, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And Peter keeps going. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Why do we behave the way we behave? Why are we good? Why do we love people even when we want to punch them? so that we can bring others into the family of God as well. It's not about our salvation. It's about theirs. My behavior is not about me being saved. I'm saved. I've committed my life to Jesus. My behavior, my actions are now to try and draw people in. Come and live like this. This is the way Jesus said, and try to be an example. Second thing, the cross sets a standard for how all people should live. The first one was we should live as members of Christ's family. Secondly, we live as if all people are God's people. We are supposed to love them and look after them. It really makes sense what Jesus was doing. He was like healing people and loving people, all a part of his family. And in some cases, we need to convince them to return to the loving embrace of their father and to the community of Christ. 
because they've forgotten or they've never known or they had a bad experience in the family. Somebody in church punched them metaphorically and they've turned. And we have to do a job there of bringing them back. We're to become boundary breakers and bridge builders. The idea of breaking down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 2.14. It's the Great Commission. Go into all nations. Infiltrate them with love and Christ. Thirdly, we live like the church is the embodiment of the family of God. We live like the church is the embodiment of the family of God because it is. The Assemblies of God, uh, 16 Fundamental Truths, the one on the church says this, the church is the body of Christ, the habitation of God through the Spirit, the habitation of God, where God lives through the Spirit with divine appointments for the fulfillment of her great commission. Church is to be an agency of God for evangelizing the world. Church is to be a corporate body in which people may worship God. Church is to be a channel of God's purpose to build a body of saints being perfected in the image of His Son. And fourth thing, the church is to be a people who demonstrate God's love and compassion all around the world. That's from our fundamental truths. That's from the assemblies of God. And we are restored to the family of God when we declare Jesus is our King and we pledge allegiance to Him and Him alone. And you know what happens? There's a cool word, atonement. We're talking about this in Sunday school this morning. Go to Sunday school. Um, We're talking about this in Sunday school. Atonement. It's actually three words put together. At one. But at one. With what? With God and each other. Atonement for sins puts us at one with God. That's not a clever... I'm not just making that up. That is literally what that word means. At one with God and with each other. We are atoned. Our sins are atoned for. We are made at one with God. We're brought back into the family. We are His people and we can be His people. Once you were not His people, y'all weren't His people, but now y'all are His people. So we're going to do something. We're going to pray.